Good morning, women of strength. We are so excited today to have our friend Allison with us. Allison's from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I've been to Philadelphia, actually. Um, but every time I hear the word Philadelphia, I, I don't know, I want to see if I'm like the only one. But like whenever I hear the word Philadelphia, I want to bust out um, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air song. Like, West Philadelphia is born raised on the playgrounds where I spent most of my days. Chilling out, well, maxing, relaxing, all cool, right? I, am I the only one? I mean, if you do. If you're wondering, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually located in West Philadelphia. I should have specified. There you go. So. <laughs> Fresh Prince. We'll call you Fresh Princess, Allison Grant. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, though, now that song's going to be stuck in your head all day. You're welcome. Let me know if you bust out singing that song every time you're Philadelphia. Ever. It's just me. I might be the weird one. Uh, all right, so Allison here from Philadelphia is a mom of two. She works as an analyst, which is probably why she has analyzed everything about her births. Girl, I can totally relate to that. I'm super analytical as well. You, she, you have a lot of data around the births. Like she, she can tell you the exact time certain things happened because she went back and looked at all of her phone records, texts, et cetera, and everything. And that's really funny because I do that when I'm at birth too. Like as a doula, I text my husband like when certain things happen and that helps two things. First of all, I get timestamps so I can make a timeline of a birth record for everybody, but also it helps keep my husband updated so that he knows kind of where we're at in the labor process and so he can plan his life taking care of children while I'm taking care of a mom having a child. <laughs> All right, let's see. We are going to talk about advocating for yourself and standing up for yourself after Allison shares her story with us. But before we do that, I'm going to read the review of the week because Megan is letting a countertop guy into her house right now because <laughs> we are moms, wives, doulas, redoing kitchens, buying houses, all sorts of things right now. And life is a little bit crazy. So I'm going to go ahead and read a review for us. And then Megan will hop on as soon as she is available. And the review I'm going to read is from Erin D39. And this one's from Apple Cass. And she says, or the title is Essential Resource for Any Woman Hoping for a V-Back. I started listening to this podcast during my first trimester in the very beginning phases of planning my VBAC. I was immediately hooked and binged all the episodes. These amazing women gave me all the confidence to find the supportive provider and reject my local hospital that has the VBAC ban. I felt so prepared for every barrier that I encountered because of Julie and Megan. I felt empowered by the stories, facts, statistics, and mantras shared. Listening to these empowering stories made me confident in my ability to have the birth I hoped for. I'm so happy to say that I was able to have my successful VBAC, and I feel that my car doulas, where I always listen, were an integral part of my success. Thank you so much. I'm pretty sure we've been called car doulas before, and I really actually like that. So we're, are we, do you consider us your car doulas? Let us know. Go find the episode picture in this on our social media pages today. Let us know. Two things. First of all, are we your car doulas? And second of all, do you bust out the fresh pins of Bel Air theme song every time you hear the word Philadelphia like I do? You are tuned in to the VBAC Link podcast with Julie Francom and Megan Heaton. VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. 
Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. Do you want a VBAC but don't know where to start? It's easy to feel like we need to figure it all out on our own. That's what we used to do, and it was the loneliest, most ineffective thing we have ever done. That's why Megan and I created our signature course, How to VBAC, the ultimate preparation course for parents that you can find at the VBAClink.com. It is the most comprehensive VBAC preparation course in the world, perfectly packaged in an online self-paced video course. Together, Megan and I have helped over 800 parents get the birth that they wanted, and we are ready to help you too. Head on over to the VBAClink.com to find out more and sign up today. That's the vbacklink.com. See you there. Allison, I want to turn the time over to you so that you have plenty of time to share your story about birth in Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground is where your kids spend most of your day. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to stop right now. I am not a rapper. All right, go on. Go ahead, Allison. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I guess I'll start out, you know, with my first pregnancy and birth. So my first birth was, or my first pregnancy was really a pretty standard pregnancy, nothing really to highlight. I was working with a birth center. So, you know, one of my biggest concerns with my first birth was that I was going to go past my due date. I knew that was pretty common. My mom went to 42 weeks with both of her kids, you know, me and my brother. My sister-in-law went to 41 weeks and ended up being induced, which ended up resulting in a C-section. So in my head, it was all about, you know, if labor can start on its own, I'm in a good position. And I really had a lot of my energy and focused on, you know, when labor would start and also not stressing, you know, my assumption was I'm, I'm going to go past 42 weeks or I'm going to go past 40 weeks. So, you know, I didn't expect anything to happen before then, but I really didn't spend a lot of time and energy thinking about, well, once labor happens, what do I need to do? What happens then? How do I keep things moving? Because I really, you know, my whole focus was if it starts, I'll be fine. And, you know, I wasn't expecting it to start when it did. My labor actually started on its due date. So it was 2 a.m. on my due date and I woke up and I just felt a little bit of discomfort. But I didn't really think too much of it at the time because, you know, you're at the end of pregnancy. You're just uncomfortable in general. But after a couple hours, it kind of became clear to me that, you know, okay, maybe, maybe I'm actually having some contractions here. So I had a prenatal appointment set up for that morning at 8 a.m. So, you know, we pack everything up, we go to the birth center, which by the way, on the way there, we took a lift to get there. And the lift driver basically told me the story of her birth, which was a complete foreshadow of what my birth would end up being like. She oh labored, my gosh. <laughs> she labored without an epidural for hours and hours and hours, had a sunny side up baby and ended up with a C-section. And I didn't know at that time, but that was exactly what was going to be my birth story. <laughs> so, you know, we get to the birth center and, you know, they don't even take me for my appointment. They take me straight to a room. They check me. I'm four to five centimeters. So I'm feeling good. You know, I showed up not too early. You know, I'm, I'm moving things along. I'm handling things pretty well. I spend some time in the bathtub and really, you know, the contractions were tough, but basically between every contraction, my husband and I are sitting there laughing and joking. So things are going really well. 
eventually I get out of the bathtub and they check me and I'm nine and a half centimeters. And this is about, you know, nine, 10 hours after I felt my first contraction. So things were moving pretty quickly for me. They offered to me now, things are also feeling a lot tougher now because I'm in transition. I'm not in the bathtub anymore. So they offered to me, you know, do you want us to break your water? We can, you know, probably get you to 10 centimeters quicker and get started pushing. So I said, yes, let's, let's do that. You know, again, I didn't really know what potential consequences there were around that or anything like that. So I said, let's do it. I just want to get this going. So they break my water and about 15 minutes later, come in and check me and I'm 10 centimeters. So they say, let's start pushing. And I didn't know about, you know, fetal ejection reflex or that, you know, I should feel an urge to push or anything. I was just like, all right, they're telling me it's time. Let's do it. I had really total faith in my providers to really just do what needed to be done. And I trusted them. So, you know, we pull out the birthing stool and I start trying to push and they're telling me, pushing wrong. Every time they check me, they tell me the baby's not moving. I'm severely dehydrated at this point because I haven't drank a drop of water basically since labor started at 2 a.m. And I'm at a birth center, so I'm not hooked up to an IV or anything either. I'm just really dehydrated now because I was really nauseous. I couldn't drink water. And at this point, the nausea was so bad and the contractions were so intense that I would basically push for three contractions and then on the fourth one, there would be no pushing. I would just be throwing up. Like, I was so sick at this point. So they get me an IV. They get me a shot for the nausea. So things are starting to improve. But every time they check me, they say the baby hasn't moved at all. Still zero station. Still zero station. So I'm just defeated at this point. So when they offer the option to me, let's transfer to the hospital and get you an epidural to, you know, calm down, to relax a little, I'm like, yeah, so let's, let's do that. Please give me the epidural. That's all I want at this point. I get to the hospital and of course you can't get that girl immediately. I got to get registered. The anesthesiologist has to be available. I'm not urgent or anything. So at this point in time, by the time they get me the epidural, I've been pushing for four hours. I'm exhausted. I'm still dehydrated, even though I've had like three bags from the IV at this point. I'm just, I'm not doing great. But as soon as I get the epidural, I really do relax. And my midwife tells my husband, you know what, why don't you step out of the room and get something to eat? She's doing a lot better. And this is where things kind of really start to get worse because while my husband's out of the room, the doctors decide to come in and there's two doctors because we're at shift change at this point in time. And they checked me and they basically told me, your baby's not coming out. And if your baby is going to come out, your baby's going to come out with a banana shaped head, which, you know, I'd always known. Banana. (laughs) Banana. What's a banana head? Megan, have you heard of that? No, I haven't heard of a banana. I've heard like a cone shape head. A banana head. That's interesting. I'm going to Google it right now. (laughs) (laughs) To me, it's like, oh my gosh, banana shaped head. Like that can't be right. Like this is like really not supposed to happen. There's apparently no way, like if my baby's going to come out, it's wrong. Like they just, that's the message that I got from that. And I heard also my midwife and the doctor talking a little bit. And the midwife mentioned to the doctor, actually, that she felt my baby move posterior at some point during the labor. Because I had known leading up into this, you know, every prenatal appointment, your baby's anterior, your baby's in a great position. But at some point during labor, my baby moved posterior, which, of course, now, you know, like, reflecting back, you're like, okay, well, was that when you broke my water? Did you know before you broke my water? Like, maybe we shouldn't have broken my water if my baby wasn't in a good position. But you know, there's a lot that I didn't know at that point in time. But then the doctor said to her that, well, your baby's 
the baby's not posterior anymore. The baby's now transverse. So again, now I know I can think back on this and be like, oh, my baby was rotating. Maybe I just needed more time. My baby was on his way to being in the right position to be able to come out. It's maybe we gave it another 30 minutes, but you know, you have these doctors come to the room and they're these authority figures and you just say, okay, they're telling me this isn't going to work. It's not going to work. I guess I need to do a C-section and that's it. And, you know, again, this whole conversation is even happening with my husband out of the room. So it just was not a, not a good spot at all. And of course, like now I, I realize it's like, well, my baby was fine. You know, his heart rate was fine. I was doing much better. Like my stress levels decreased now that I had the epidural, but I just didn't know to say, well, let's, let's wait or let's, let's see if we can give it another 30 minutes and what happens or, you know, is there any other option? Can we try something else? I didn't even know that once I had the epidural, I could be in other positions. I thought I was stuck lying there on my back. I just didn't know things. So I didn't know how to advocate for myself and how to really, you know, get myself a better birth in that situation. So I ended up having that C-section and I'm, you know, pretty heartbroken after this because having a C-section, you know, not only was it the difficulty of having a C-section, but it also meant that I can no longer birth with this practice because they don't do VBACs. So I, now it's like I had this amazing prenatal care with these midwives and, you know, I imagined having all of my children with them. And now my first birth went like this and I can never have a birth with them. I can never have that birth center birth. So, you know, it's, it was pretty upsetting for me. And you know, when I got pregnant with my second, I'm sitting here, you know, like, all right, well, where am I going to go? So I reach out to my local ICANN and I ask people, where should I go for birth? And they recommend to me this OBGYN midwife practice where the midwives are supposedly really great with VBACs. And there's an OBGYN at this practice who's like really great if you decide on a repeat cesarean for getting a family-centered cesarean. So I'm like, all right, this sounds like a good practice. They're pretty close to me. So I try them out. And I walk out of my first appointment just in tears. It was awful. The midwife basically just started the appointment by telling me, well, you know, a VBAC's really risky for your baby. You know, she's like, let me pull out my phone and do the VBAC calculator. She's looking at the dating ultrasound and trying to push up my due date by four days, which I'm like, okay, wait a second. Four days is in the like realm of error on a dating ultrasound. And I'm someone who's gone through infertility. I had infertility with my first and used a fertility doctor to get pregnant. And with my second, you know, I didn't use a fertility doctor, but we were using basically every tracking method possible. So I was pretty positive about my due date. And, you know, four days on a due date maybe isn't that much. But, I mean, as you guys know, when you're a VBAC, they're more likely to push interventions earlier on you. So, four days could really matter. So I just really wasn't happy with that. And immediately was just, you know, again, like, okay, wait a second, if this is supposed to be the best practice, now where do I go? If they're not willing to help me, who's who's going to be the practice I can go with? So I looked back, you know, at my ICANN group, and they did recommend another practice to me that was further away. So I didn't really want to go with that at first. But we went to them, and these midwives with this practice were phenomenal. And so both my husband and I were like, you know what, that first appointment was like, the whole point of that first appointment of getting that midwife who really did not treat me well, was to get me out of that practice, because I wasn't meant to be there. I was meant to be with this other practice. And, you know, how awful would it have been if 
every prenatal appointment was with the great midwives who are there, because I'm sure there's plenty of wonderful midwives. There's a reason that practice is recommended. But what if I had every appointment with them and I'm feeling great and then my birth is with this one? You know, it just, it would not have gone well. So it was, it was meant to be, I feel like, that I had her for that very first appointment to just push me away from that practice, push me to this other hospital that, you know, while farther away has really good statistics around C-sections and VBACs. And so just really a VBAC supportive hospital. And so again, you know, pretty standard pregnancy, not, not a ton um, to note really throughout the pregnancy. I did have my focus on some different things. So, you know, this time I got a doula, I, you know, went to chiropractor, I took a birthing class that was specific on um, movement and um, how to move a baby through your pelvis because, you know, I kind of came in now with some prior knowledge. I didn't have concerns about, you know, going into labor. I didn't have concerns about dilating to 10 centimeters. My concern was, how am I going to push out a baby? Because last time I pushed for five hours, I tried, you know, tons of different positions because I didn't have an epidural for the first four hours and I never got the baby out. And like, I had that messaging really in my head, you know, that, even my midwife said to me, you know, my postpartum appointment, like you can try for a VBAC, but you couldn't push out a six pound, 15 ounce baby. So, you know, you're not really a good candidate because if you couldn't push out that, like what, what can you do? Was really just the message. You're like, yeah, but I also had a posterior baby and there were a lot of other factors in on that. It made it harder, not impossible, just harder. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Like, you know, I was pushing before I even should have. You had me push the second I reached 10 centimeters, you know, because I was at nine and a half and 15 minutes later I was at 10. Like you had me pushing the second I was at 10 centimeters. There was no time for my body to, you know, reach that point that I was ready to push. And so I think, you know, all that you're pushing wrong was that my body wasn't ready to push yet, you know? So it just, it was a lot of mental work that I did to really get myself prepared to believe in myself but to be honest I still had doubts coming back to me throughout the whole pregnancy and even while I was in labor you know I still had doubts flooding me and you know when I talked to my doula after it's like we kind of agreed that it was like basically the last 20 minutes of labor is when I realized like oh wait I can actually do this you know like it took me that long to really get my mind to believe in it because it just those doubts are there. But like I said, it was a pretty standard pregnancy again. It was a little tough because this time I went to 41 weeks. So, you know, my first time, I literally never thought about going into labor until the moment it happened. There was no stressing about it or anxiety about it. And of course, this time I'm like, well, oh, I went earlier than I was expecting last time. Maybe I'll go even earlier this time. So now I'm like one of those moms who's every night, like thinking like, is tonight tonight? Am I going to wake up at 2 a.m.? I don't know what's happening. So there was a lot of stress around that. And of course, so I went to 41 weeks. So that went on and on. But, you know, the night that I did go into labor, same kind of thing. I just woke up to some discomfort. And that was at like 2.40 in the morning. And, you know, my husband kind of notices because I just, I'm trying to relax, but nothing's really comfortable. Like the most comfortable thing for me was just to pace around the room. And so my husband notices and I'm like, you know, go, go back to sleep. Like we're probably having a baby today, but you know, you should just rest now. I can't rest, but you might as well get some rest right now. And he just looked at me like I was crazy. Like, uh, no, like I know this baby's coming. Like, what do you need? So we call the doula and you know, we agree like 
you don't need to come over yet, but you know, today's going to be the day. We just wanted to give you a heads up. And then my husband goes and starts trying to get everything ready for, get everything ready for, you know, going to the hospital. We did prepare more this time ahead of time, but you know, there's still last minute things that we had to get together, get everything in the car. And while he's away, I called the midwife and this is at 3.30 a.m. So it hasn't even been an hour since I woke up with discomfort. So it wasn't even like timeable contractions, but it was discomfort. And I let the midwife know that, you know, my contractions are every three minutes. They're not incredibly strong, but they're increasing rapidly in strength. And, you know, they started every three minutes from the moment I woke up and they've been lasting a minute from the moment I woke up. So my midwife was kind of like, all right, well, you don't sound like you're in active labor, but you've been through this before. Let me know if, if you think you should come in. And I, I was, you know, I felt like things were moving quickly, but, you know, I kind of, again, trusted the midwife on this. So I was like, all right, well, you're right. I'm not an active later. Let's, let's wait a little bit. But, you know, shortly after that, I called my doula back and I was like, all right, things are really, really getting intense, like really quickly for me. Can you please come over? And then around like 4 a.m., I realized my contractions are now two minutes apart. So this is, again, like just slightly over an hour since I woke up. And they're already two minutes apart, lasting for a minute or more. So I text my midwife again, like uh, things are getting faster. I decided to get in the shower. But, you know, it was kind of a bad idea because I had this like strong desire with every contraction to just pull anything I saw, like with all my strength. So I was like really afraid that I was going to yank the like spout off the tub um and then all of a sudden my husband's gonna be dealing with this like water spraying everywhere problem in our house instead of getting me to the hospital so I'm like all right I gotta, gotta get out of the shower but you know I text the midwife again at 4:20, and I'm like we need to go and again this still hasn't even been two hours since everything started and you know my doula shows up at the house and you know I asked I asked my doula like you know what what are you thinking because Really, in my head at this point in time, it hasn't even been two hours, and I'm losing it. Like, these contractions are so intense at this point. And in my head, it's like, it's only been two hours. So, like, I'm just really not handling this well. Like, there was no way in my head that I thought that I could already be in transition at this point because it's only two hours. So, I'm just thinking that I'm, I'm really not handling it. But, you know, my doula ends up telling me, like, you know, giving me some instructions about like, if I get the urge to push in the car and things like that. And I'm sitting here thinking like, what are you talking about? Like, there's no way I'm going to push in the car, which of course is what ends up happening. (laughs) Um, So my hospital is generally 45, 50 minutes away. If you're in rush hour, like 75 minutes away. But thankfully, we're going at like 5am on a Saturday. So we were able to get there in 35 minutes. But at some point in the car ride, you know, things just really took a turn and I just screamed, oh my God. And apparently at that point in time, my husband just stopped listening to me. Like he stopped hearing me completely because the next thing I know I said to him is I said, call Nicole, my doula, because she had said, you know, if things get tough in the car, let me know. You can call me. I'll walk you through contractions. But the problem was I didn't have my cell phone. My husband had my cell phone, so I couldn't call her. But he stopped hearing me after I said, oh, my God, because in his head, he was like, oh, my God, what does that mean? Is, is the head coming out? Like, so he like literally heard nothing more that I said. And then I started pushing because I just I this time I felt the urge to push. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is what people are talking about. This is what I didn't feel 
for five hours of pushing with my first baby, I never felt this. And here I am with my second baby and like three hours into labor and I'm feeling this urge to push. So, you know, we get to the hospital and I meet my midwife and, you know, <laughs> the first thing she asks is, you know, okay, I want to check your cervix. And my doula immediately stepped in because my doula knew that like one of my biggest things with this was I don't want anyone to check my cervix until I'm ready to push because I really strongly felt last time where things went wrong is that idea of my midwife knowing I was at 10 centimeters, you know, now it's time to start pushing. Even if I'm not encouraged to push or even if I know mentally it's not time to push, you're kind of already being put on a clock there. And even though I had like good midwives who, you know, didn't say you have to be done in two hours, they weren't really ready for me to push in for 10 hours. And then my current midwives weren't either. So I just really, I didn't want anyone to check me until I knew I, I felt that urge. And since I did, I said, all right, let's go ahead and check me. Confirmed 10 centimeters. But then my midwife tells me I'm zero station. And that's where, you know, all these doubts come flooding back because that's where my baby was stuck. Just seven zero station. Yeah. So it's just like this doubt floods over me and I don't believe it's possible. I immediately asked for the epidural because I just can't handle this. But, you know, they kind of talked me out of the epidural. The, you know, my midwife and my doula get me, you know, mentally back on track. And then at some point, my midwife suggests to me to push on my back, which I remember thinking, like, wait, why, why are we suggesting for me to be pushing on my back? Like, aren't, are you supposed to know this isn't a great position? But, you know, I was like, all right, let's try it. You know, I think it was an idea of, like, because I had, like, that strong urge to pull with my arms that, like, you know, I could really pull my legs and curl with each push. So that's what we were kind of trying to do. But I remember they um, asked me if I wanted a mirror. And I'm like, yes, yes, please bring me a mirror. I want to see what's going on. And they bring me like this like full length mirror and they have it like seven feet across the room for me. And they were like trying to like position it. And they asked me like, can you see, is this like the right spot, the right angle? And I just like look at them like super disappointed. I'm like, I'm not wearing my glasses. I can't see anything. And everyone in the room just like cracks up and like takes the mirror away. Um, But you know, we just, I end up getting out of that on my back position pretty quickly because it just wasn't working for me. And I get back to the same kind of position I had with my first, where I really just kind of wanted to be on my knees doing a squat. And I remember it getting to the point where the pain between the contractions was actually worse than the contraction itself because there was so much pressure on my sacrum and on my tailbone. I know they were telling me, you know, you got to relax in between contractions, but I didn't want to stop pushing because every time I stopped pushing, I just felt all that pain. But eventually my midwife, you know, tells me to put my hand down and I feel my baby's head. And all of a sudden, like, my energy shifts. Like, I, that was the moment where I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to happen. This is, this is real. And I started, like, shouting to everyone, I'm going to push a baby out of my vagina. I'm going to push a baby out of my vagina. I'm going to push a baby out of my vagina. Like, I'm just I'm all of a sudden. It was great. And like my midwife looks at me and is like, yeah, there's, there's no going back now. Like, this is I love that. My doula later was like, yeah, that was like your mantra for your birth. I'm going to push a baby out of my vagina. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I get to a place where, you know, it's really that moment you're feeling the ring of fire. And honestly, for me, the ring of fire wasn't that bad. It was really that tailbone sacral pain that was the worst for me. But finally, there's that push, that push where my baby's head came out. And it was just the most amazing feeling. I mean, 
all the pressure is gone, all this relief, like, oh my God, this just happened. It was amazing. And I felt the same way when I pushed out the shoulders, like just all this like positive energy. And I just, I felt so, so good. And, you know, my baby was born at 7.49 a.m. So this is basically five hours since I woke up with that discomfort. And basically half of my labor was just pushing. Like everything just happened so fast in the beginning. Like I'm sitting here, you know, thinking I'm not handling things well. Like I should be able to handle these early contractions better. But really it was just everything moved so fast in my labor. But, you know, after my baby was born and again, I'm in like this, this squatting possession. So I'm like looking down, down between my legs and I see my baby laying there and I don't know if it was looking at my baby or just like the energy in the room shifted, but I just, I immediately knew everything was wrong. Like it just, it was not right. So they quickly cut the cord. Um, they still let my husband do that. You know, they, they just kind of rushed him a little bit on doing it and then took my baby over to the warmer and, you know, they're kind of reassuring me. I'm like, asking them what's going on? Like, what's wrong with my baby? Did I do something wrong? And they're like, you know, your baby's in good hands. Let's focus on getting your placenta out. And then eventually a NICU doctor comes in the room and basically says, we're, we're taking your baby to the NICU. She's not breathing. She's, we've been trying to give her breath, but she's still not breathing on her own. So they immediately start taking my baby out of the room. But the NICU doctor looks at me and she's like, wait a second, have you even seen your baby yet? And I'm like, no, like, I mean, not except for that, like, quick little look between my legs before you took her off to the warmer, but I haven't really seen her. So they actually wheel her back into the room. And that like made me feel so much better because it was like, all right, if you're not like rushing out with my baby, then, you know, it can't be emergent, right? Like they're, they're taking the time to bring her back in, but you know, it, it really was pretty serious. You know, like I said, my baby wasn't breathing on her own. She ended up going through, well, she had what's called um, hypoxic ischemia encephalopathy or HIE. And basically, you know, she wasn't breathing on her own at birth. We don't know how long, like if she, if she wasn't getting oxygen while she was during labor or if it only happened really at the very end, we, we don't have a lot of information about it. You know, I talked to my midwife a bunch after like, you know, should I have done something differently or like, was, was there something, you know, should I just have a repeat C-section? Like what, what happened? And my midwife and the nurses all basically said everything was normal in the labor like there was never a point where the fetal heart tones showed that there was a problem everything was normal there just was never any indication everyone in the room was shocked when this happened it wasn't anything any like there was no you know anyone in there already ready to take care of a baby because there was no expectation that something was going to go wrong and so what ended up happening is my baby ended up getting what's called hypothermia treatment where they basically reduced her temperature so that her body can just basically focus on healing so this meant that you know not only like you know with your c-section where you might not get that golden hour of skin to skin i wasn't even able to pick up and hold my baby until she was five days old and i wasn't able to breastfeed my baby until she was eight days old and you know i wasn't able to take my baby home from the hospital until she was 15 days old and so it was just you know this crazy moment of all these dueling emotions because you're sitting here like I just did this really amazing thing and I'm so excited and I'm feeling so empowered and I did something that you know I never believed in myself being able to do and then all of a sudden it's like but what happened to my baby and like this 
like, is she okay? And like, what are all these tests they're going to do going to say, you know, what are the specialists going to say? Like, there's all these things that they're throwing at you that, you know, well, we don't know if she can see, you're going to have to go see an eye doctor. We don't know what kind of delays she's going to have. We're monitoring for seizures. We have to give her an MRI. Like they're throwing all these things at you. And it's like, I don't, I don't have time to, to feel my emotions about my birth anymore. I mean, I remember immediately after, before we knew all this information, you know, we're just waiting to hear back. My, my doula and my husband and I sitting in the room, in the labor and delivery room, just reliving everything. And it was so great. And we're just talking about all these great moments and all these funny moments. And then the NICU doctor comes in and it just, it all went away. Like there just, there wasn't any space for those emotions anymore. And, you know, all I can do now is I have all these questions running through my head of like, well, did I need to push her faster or harder? Should I not have had a VBAC? You know, this is, right, like, this is one of the concerns of why a VBAC could be risky, right? But at the same time, there was literally nothing even in my labor or pregnancy to indicate there was a problem. So it was kind of a lot of, a lot of work that I had to do post my birth to really accept the fact that, like, you know, I did what I could with the information I had in that moment, right? Like, Obviously, I, you know, if I knew going into it that, you know, if you have a C-section, this wouldn't happen. And if you have a VBAC, this will, like, I would have obviously chose the C-section for my child's sake. But with the information I had, and, you know, even to this day, it's still not something I know. I don't know if we would have had different outcomes with a C-section because we don't know what caused the issue. There's, there's just no information in her situation. So, you know, it was a really, really hard time to kind of sit there with like, I want to feel this joy. And yet I can't because how can I feel joy when your daughter's sitting there on morphine because the cooling treatment is, you know, bothering her so much, they have to sedate her so that she's comfortable. Like, how can you feel happy at that point? So it just, it was really hard. And it's been really hard to really feel those emotions of joy and happiness around this amazing birth that I did have. And it really was amazing, in my opinion. So <laughs> that's my story. Wow, what a crazy ride. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, that was, that's, that's intense. But, you know, I, um, I noticed something that right after birth, like you question, you started questioning what you did. Right. You're yeah. like, you questioned your choice. I kind of had a moment like that too. Cause I had like some weird blood loss stuff um, okay. that like really was unexplained and we really don't even know where it went. And I was like, Oh, well, mate, like, would it be a, like smarter? Would I have been, you know, in better um, shape if I just would have scheduled a C-section and I just went through all of those things. And then I was like, yeah. no, no, I yeah. did what I truly felt was right. I followed my intuition I knew that that was the birth that I needed. And right. yes, some things happened after, but I shouldn't question. And I feel bad because I think um, as VBAC birthers, because so many people question us, that right. if anything goes wonky or different and isn't seamless, which let me just tell you, birth isn't seamless. It's very, very rare that a birth happens from start to finish and everything is perfect. It right. just like... I mean, I've been a doula for seven years and I've never seen a perfect birth, right? Yeah. And so what makes me sad though is that like as VBAC parents, we have a lot of people questioning and doubting anyway. And so if something happens, then it's like, 
well, well, because like I, I felt like I went through a stage where I didn't want to tell anyone about my weird blood loss mm. because I was like, oh, because then they're just going to doubt me and be like, yeah, I bet that wouldn't have happened if you just would have had a C-section or yeah. uh, you know what I mean? And it makes me so frustrated that we have to go through that. And so I love, you know, what you just said, like, yeah, like I did it and it was okay. And this is what happened. And it was crazy, but I'm grateful. And now we're here and it's awesome. So, yeah. yeah, I think my message to a lot of people out there is be like, you know, don't, don't let that get to you. You know, like if something weird happens, like don't put yourself down, you know, cause it just, things happen in birth. But yeah, we right. want to talk a little bit about advocating for ourselves and our, and our rights in the birth space. And this is a really, really touchy topic because there have been, I mean, Julie and I have talked to tons of people over the years and even before we did this and have had people say like, you know, I felt like my rights were violated or I felt like there long time ago, there was a colleague of ours that described her birth as that she was birth raped, Mm. like actually said those words. And we're like, whoa, like that is a heavy thing to feel like happened, to say that it feel like happened to you, you know? And so we just kind of want to talk a little bit about the rights because a lot of people, I mean, not even even during birth, like even during prenatal care and postpartum and everything like that, people are having things happen to them. They're like, oh, I just assumed that was normal because my provider did that. Or I didn't know what else to say, or I was too scared to say anything, or I didn't know my place, and so I didn't say anything, right? And so I kind of want to talk a little bit about that is because really, like, we have a lot of rights. We really, really do. And no one can make you do anything. So a birthing person can refuse any and all medical interventions, regardless of the harm, even if that means it's a life or death situation. Truly, like that sounds crazy, but like you really can say no and they can say, well, you're going to die and you can still say no. (laughs) Like most people won't say no, maybe, but like you literally like you have the ultimate choice to refuse, right? Um, Hospitals cannot force anyone to undergo any procedure or treatment without consent. Again, even if that means life or death. Depending on the stage of pregnancy, the hospital can refuse to treat a person who rejects care, which is hard because we know in the VBAC world, there's a ton of VBAC bans. And so people are feeling Mm -hmm. left unsure of what to do. We got a message this weekend saying, I have no support. Like, I feel like my only option is an unassisted birth, which makes me just cringe inside because I wish... The hospitals and birth centers and wherever, like states in general, countries, were understanding what they're making people feel forced to do, right? Yeah. Like, they, like they would honestly rather turn down a parent who is wanting to have a vaginal birth and let them go. And there are people, this is not anything bad about unassisted. People who choose unassisted, like that is okay. That is their choice. We support people in their own choices, but like they would rather turn them down and have them feel forced to have an unassisted birth. Like, yeah, and I, w- I was just gonna say, I mean, 
Now, I wasn't turned down with my first provider I saw for my VBAC, but the way I walked out of that appointment, that's immediately what I was thinking. Do I need to go unassisted? Because yeah. if this is supposed to be the best support out there, Mm-hmm. And I'm you're not, not feeling supported it. here. Yeah, and you're not getting it exactly. And that is just—it makes me cringe inside. It oh, it's so not right. We also have the right to ask questions about our care and inquire about all alternate alternatives. And there have been situations where you know I've seen people that they had questions and they're like, "There's no time." Like a provider literally said, "There's no time for questions." <laughs> But then there was a half hour time before a C-section. Right. (laughs) Like it just didn't even make sense to me. So we have, we also have the right to get a second opinion and request different nurse care, doctor, anything. At any point, you could be literally pushing your baby out and your baby's crowning and something happened and not be okay with that and say, we're stopping. I need a new provider. You're excused. (laughs) Like we literally have that right. Consent forms can be signed during prenatal visits or at the hospital. Admissions do not count as ongoing consent to every procedure. So we've had, we know people, I know Julie's had known people. We've had people write us where they're, they're in, they're admitted and they're, they feel stuck, right? Because they're admitted, but they don't, they can refuse the right to any procedure done and they can even leave. So It's really important as women of strength to know that you have options and to not ever feel like you are trapped because that trapped feeling is never going to benefit you in any way. We, you know, we had a podcast that she described, she felt like she was confined and in jail. And she actually said she felt like she was a schoolgirl letting everyone tell her what she could do, you know, and I just thought that was such a an awesome way to explain it, honestly, because I think that is how a lot of people feel. Trapped, confined, and being told what to do in a moment yeah. where they're most vulnerable. Most vulnerable. We are so vulnerable when we are giving birth. And so it's important to know and stand up for yourself. And it's okay if it's scary. It's okay that it feels scary because it can be scary. But be okay to stand up for yourself because it's going to affect you and your future for sure. And you want it to be, you want to be able to look back and say, like, I'm glad I said something or I'm glad I asked that question. Even if you decide to do that intervention, you don't ever want to look back as regret. Yeah. And I think that's one of the the big things from my first, because I didn't know to ask questions. I didn't know to advocate for myself. I just kind of trusted what the providers are saying and what to do that. That's why I'm left with all these questions of, well, was that first C-section really even necessary? Because now I'm like, you know, my baby could have turned. Yeah. Yeah, My baby could have turned. I didn't need to have my water broken. We didn't need to rush things along. I didn't need to push as soon as I was at 10 centimeters. I, there was no bad heart tones with me or my baby, nothing going wrong with us that would indicate that we needed to move to a C-section. It was just, well, you've been doing this for five hours and made no progress. But, you know, there was progress being made. I didn't know it was, but there was progress. My baby was rotating. That's progress. Yeah, super big progress. And, and you know, they could have been like, okay, we're going to turn to this side because your baby's transverse to the side. And so right. gravity will help baby turn right. the rest of the way this side. Like, there's so many things that could be looked at and you just don't know, like you just don't know what you don't know sometimes. And that's kind of where I feel like 
my message today is don't be scared to ask the questions, you know, like, even if you don't know what the question is, like, are there any other alternatives? <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Like you might need to, you not, not you know, you might not know about what alternatives there are specifically to say, well, can I try this alternative is what other alternatives are there? I would like to explore them. Can you break them down for me? Yeah. You know? So, oh, well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Really appreciate it. We're so glad things went well and that you have your baby to uh, just snuggle with now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I guess I didn't necessarily conclude things for people, but luckily my baby, you know, has, is doing wonderfully. You know, there's a lot of things that could have come as a result of this and she is just proving everyone wrong. So yes. um, things have turned around immensely, which I think has been also very healing for me. Good. So good. So, I'm so good. glad. All right. Well, we've almost, we forgot to ask the questions on the last episode, but oh, yes, I want to ask you two questions. Let's see. Where are we? Here we go. Um, what is a secret lesson or something no one really talks about that you wish you would have known ahead of time when preparing for birth? So I think for me, it's really just, and I think, you know, you already touched on this a bit, but just that, you know, there is no such thing as a perfect birth. And, you know, things that sound really wonderful to you about someone else's birth when you're, they're telling you their story can really actually be very traumatic for them. You know, to me, it might sound amazing that, oh, you didn't tear at all. You only pushed for 30 minutes because, you know, I tore and I pushed for five hours and then I pushed for two and a half hours. But that doesn't mean that their experience isn't still hard and traumatic in its own way. You know, everyone's experience is their own experience. And so I guess kind of that idea that, you know, you can't really have a perfect birth. It's really just, you know, what we've already kind of talked about is just being able to feel that you were in control as best as you could be in this you know, crazy moment of your life. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great advice. Next question. What is your best tip for someone preparing for VBAC? Yeah, I guess I would say, you know, just education. <laughs> um, because, you know, a lot of the, the ways that I uh, didn't get my, or I had my C-section in the first was because I, I, you know, didn't know to question anything or I didn't know that there could be um, risks to interventions that we did so education before if you can but even in that moment of you know asking those questions awesome that's great well thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and we are so excited that your baby is doing well and that everyone is happy and healthy would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share and submit your story. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.